That was wonderful, wasn't it? I mean, would you join with me in a word of prayer? Father, thank you for that amazing reminder about amazing grace. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that as we look at your word this morning, that that's what would capture each and every one of us here. I pray, Lord, for the next moments that we are together, that you would not allow our minds to wander, that you might be able to use me in some way as we open up your word to speak to us, to encourage us, to rebuke us, to admonish us, to strengthen us, to comfort us, whatever it is that we need as we have arrived here this morning. Father, only you know why people are here. Some have come because they're anxious to spend time with other believers, to hear what you have to say. Some maybe are here, Lord, out of habit and tradition. Some maybe are here because, oh, they just want to please their spouse or their parents. But however we are here, it is a good thing that we are here. And so we are asking and praying that your Holy Spirit would speak to us this morning. Thank you, Father God. We pray all this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Well, it is a joy uh, to be here. Um, my congregation is probably enjoying that I'm here this morning. Um, we've been working through the Book of Romans, and uh, we've been in it for about three years. And they, they wanted to go verse by verse by verse, which we have been doing. And it's amazing that they think that it takes so long to do that. I took them literally. I'm going verse by verse by verse. I'm not trying to punish them, but I am trying to help them. Well, in this month, uh, January, the prior month, we had our couples retreat for our congregation. And a lot of times when I'm over there speaking, I have people, Susie and I and my wife, we get a big room and people come in afterwards for counseling and they want to talk and stuff. But I've never had a situation quite like this one man, one pastor who was leading a seminar. In this seminar, I was told that there was a man who is in very good standing with the church for at least 25 years. He was a very respected leader. And he came to his pastor after one of the morning sessions. He said, Pastor, I need to talk with you for just a second. I got something to tell you. I've never told this to anybody. And it's hard for me to tell you this. But my wife and I, we have been married for 30 years, and we have a fight every day of our marriage. Well, the pastor was pretty surprised by this confession because he saw this couple a certain way, and he was, really didn't know what to say. And so he, as he was trying to, you know, gather his thoughts, he said, every day? And the man says, yes, sir. Pastor, it's every day. Well, did you and your wife fight this morning before you came to our sessions? Yes, we did. Well, how did it end up? Well, the man answered, she came crawling to me on her hands and knees. Oh, remarked the pastor, what did she say? She said, come out from under that bed, you coward, and fight like a man. <clears throat> now, hopefully, Pastor John's not experiencing any of that uh, uh, this weekend. But what I would like to do is talk to you about fighting, but fighting a little bit different. Fighting for, for who we are called to be as people of the gospel, those who belong to Christ. Uh, Pastor Tim and I went out to lunch last week, and again, I was sharing, Tim, do you have anything really particular that you want me to speak to your congregation? You want me to try to get raises for all the staff or do something, you know, as an outside speaker? He says, no. I said, well, can I share something with your congregation? It's a one-time shot. It's uh, on my heart. And he says, sure, go ahead. 
The one thing that is concerning me, I've been a pastor now for 38 years, is that we are struggling not only as a nation, but we are struggling as a church in the nation in which we live. I personally, in, in our denomination, am involved with some of our churches that are struggling, and we have churches right now that people are divided, and people have left, and the group that has stayed is, is just swimming and trying to understand and make sense of what's taking place. And to the secular culture, they, they look at this and they say, listen, you said that Jesus is the answer for what we're missing in our lives, and yet you guys have Jesus and you can't even get along with one another. I have people in my own church that all claim the name of Christ and they can't stand one another. And some of them are married to each other. And it's hard to be the salt and light in the nation when in many ways we act and think and talk just like the world. In our churches, we teach and believe that sex outside of marriage is, is wrong. And yet, we're having sex before marriage and outside of marriage. Your couples retreat, we teach that marriage is a lifelong commitment. And yet, divorce is terrorizing the evangelical church today. We teach that we are called to love one another. Jesus says, as you love one another, the world will know. The world will know that you are my disciples. And yet we gossip about one another. We slander one another. And we can't stand one another. The first church that I served as a senior pastor, when I went there, they said, oh, pastor, you'll love coming here because all we do is love one another. I thought, that sounds great. I've only been there for a short period of time, and I put us in small groups. And the first week after I put us together in small groups, people came to my office and said, Rich, Pastor Rich, you need to move us out of that group. Why? Well, we have people there we just can't stand to be with. I thought you guys loved one another. No, that's on Sunday mornings. <laughs> we teach and believe that we are called to go forth into the world to share the gospel. And yet many of us, it's been years since we have ever shared our faith. It's been years since we've invited somebody to come to church. For many of us, we don't even pray for the lost. For many of us, I've had people tell me, Pastor Rich, I don't even like to be with the lost. They make me feel uncomfortable. And yet we know that we have been saved out of the world to go back into the world to take the good news of Jesus. Now, some might say the reason why those things are taking place is because those people really are not believers. They claim to be believers, but they are not. Now, that's a possibility. I understand that. But I want to address those of us who really truly are believers and yet who are still struggling with all these things that I'm mentioning. When I was in seminary over 37 years ago, I learned this little phrase. It said, what I do emerges out of who I am. What I do emerges out of who I am. That's how we see ourselves. My wife and I like country music. Dirk Bentley had a song out some years back called My Last Name. And I contain the following lines. Passed down from generation too far back to trace, I can see all my relations when I look into my face. May never make it famous, but I'll never bring it shame. It's my last name. Now, if you and I really believed that we belong to Christ, we would make sure that everything that we do would never have the possibility of ever bringing shame to Jesus. This man sings about it in a song. We need to live it out in our lives. And that's what I want to share with you and talk with you about this morning. 
In our church, we have a little ministry we call it Belt the Truth, where we memorize Scripture. We memorize Scripture and we try to hold it dear to us so that we can take our thoughts captive to Jesus. And one of our Belt of Truth verses is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. And it states this, For the love of Christ controls us. We sang about it this morning. The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, notice this, that those who live might no longer live for themselves. But for him who for their sake died and was raised. That's the perspective that we're called to have. If we recognize that about ourselves, remember that's who we are? What we would do would emerge out of that, that we no longer live for ourselves. And yet, what are we seeing take place today in the church in America? We fight among ourselves because things are not exactly how we think they should go, or they're not exactly how we'd like them to go, or we don't like the way somebody looks, or the way somebody dresses, or we think the temperature is too hot, or too cool. At one of our marriage retreats, it was funny, we, we were at Pismo, and I had people who got up and said, oh, it's way too hot in here, so they opened up a door. They sat down. As soon as they got done sitting down, somebody walked up and went up and shut the door because they thought it was too cold. And so we had this little thing taking place while I'm trying to teach about what it is to be in Christ. The door opens, the door shuts. The door opens, the door shuts. The door opens, the door shuts. The door I said, time out! Time out! How about we do this? For those of you who are hot, why don't you go sit on this side of the room and we'll open the door up for you. For those of you who are cold, why don't you come sit over here where the door is not open? How about we do that? All right, why don't we take uh, just a moment and move around? Not a single person moved. But when the service was over, well, you better believe it, they beat a path right to my, Pastor Rich, do you see what's taking place? Pastor Rich, what are you going to do about it? Well, I don't know, what do you want me to do about it? I mean, I gave you options. But we have a tendency, we struggle with I, me, my, and mine, even though we have died to ourselves, are called to die to ourselves. So I think there's something more that is needed. And so if you would turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3, I want to look at... Uh, a prayer of the Apostle Paul. Ephesians chapter 3. And I'd like to read verses 14 through 19 this morning. And again, I'm only going to have time to make some brief statements. If I was, you were part of my church, I could take verse by verse and we could do that, but I can only highlight certain things. Although, Don, did you say I can speak to you at 2 o'clock? Oh, no, no, okay. A little bit. Ephesians 3, verses 14 and 19. Would you follow along as I read this? For this reason I bow my knee before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, the first petition in here, there's two main petitions. The first petition in here is a petition for power. That's power and inner being that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. Now, Paul already knows that when you receive Christ, Christ takes up residence in your life already through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. He already knows that. So we already, when we say yes to Jesus, we have the Lord living in our hearts. 
But what Paul is asking here is that we need God's power. We can't do it on our own. We need God's power that Christ would be at the very core of how we live our lives. He would be so much central to everything that we do that every time we would make a decision or every time we'd be ready to engage in an action, we'd be asking, how does this bring honor and glory to Christ? We would be those that would say, how does my speech right now bring honor and glory to Christ? How does the things that I'm upset with right now bring honor and glory to Christ? How do the things that I'm pursuing right now bring honor and glory to Christ? Paul recognizes it's not enough just to say it. It's not just enough just to sing about it. Paul recognizes that we are corrupt enough, even as believers, that God must grant us the power that Christ would dwell and take over our lives in such a way that everything we do and say would be honoring to him. Remember, what we do emerges out of who we are. If we belong to Christ and he's at the very center of our life, then everything that we do would begin to reflect that. We won't be churches that are fighting among ourselves. We won't be those who are pursuing how to please I, me, my, and mine. But it will be, Lord, how do we bring honor and glory to you by the things that I'm doing? New Testament scholar D.A. Carson put it this way. When Christ first moves into our lives, he finds us in very bad repair. It takes a great deal of power to change us. And that is why Paul prays for power. He asks that God may so strengthen us by his power in our inner being that Christ may genuinely take up residence within us, transforming us into a house that pervasively reflects his own character. We need the power of God to do so. You know, as Americans, we have a tendency to think more highly of ourselves than what we ought. Even though we know it's a wonderful thing that we're saved by Christ and that Christ loves us, I mean, if we're really honest with ourselves, don't we really tell ourselves inside, what's not to love? The reason why we get so offended when we think somebody treats us in a, in a derogatory manner is because we think of ourselves too highly. Hey, I don't deserve to be treated like that. And so a lot of times when we think about our salvation, we think, well, it's not that big of a deal for Christ to love us because we're pretty lovable. Not according to Scripture. And not according to reality. Isn't that true? I learned this little ditty some years back where it says this. Oh, to live above with the ones we love, oh, that will be glory. But to live below with the ones we know, well, that's another story. We need God's power to change us. Pastor John Piper has said this, God is simply not magnificently central in the lives of most of our people, us as believers. He is not the sun around which all the planets of our daily lives are held in orbit and find their proper God-appointed place. He is more like the moon which waxes and wanes and you can go for nights and never think about him at all. He is the sun. He needs to be the sun. We need to pray for power because left to ourselves, we have a tendency to, even though we love Jesus, we get off track. We need God's power to allow Christ to dwell, to take up residence, to turn us from the inside out, as we just sang, from the inside out, so that we will love him above all things and think about him at all times. But I wish I had more time to develop it than I don't. I want to go to the second petition. The second petition is an interesting petition. It's found in verses 18 and 19 that we may have strength to comprehend with all the saints 
what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is also a, a petition for power, but it's a petition for power that we would begin to understand and really feel and experience the love of Christ for us. Not just to sing about it, not just to talk about it, but to experience it in a way that goes beyond knowledge. You see what Paul is doing here? He gives a paradox in verse 19. To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. You, you, you see the paradox here? It's not that we shouldn't have knowledge about the love of Christ. In fact, Paul mentions that in, in, in chapter 1, and he mentions that in chapter 2. Because of our time, I can't take time, but, but if you look at chapter 1 and chapter 2, Paul talks about how in love we were predestined and God came after us, how in love God gave his mercy to us. We can know those things intellectually. We can read those things. But Paul is what he's praying here. We need power. We need power to begin to really experience the limitless dimensions of the love of Christ, something that goes beyond knowledge. It's not less than knowledge, but it's more than knowledge. The length and the breadth and the height and the depth. And it's a love that goes beyond knowing. It is experienced. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing that the Lord would want to give us that. An intimacy that, for I'm afraid, that many of our churches and some of us as believers lack. An intimacy where we know him and love him in ways that only he can provide. We recently uh, adopted a dog. Our, our two dogs died this last year, and so, so we went to the SPCA. <clears throat> we began to pray that God would let us find a dog, a puppy, we thought, a puppy that um, would love our granddaughters. Our granddaughters are young, and, and when they pet the dog, they pull its ear and pull its tail and do things to it. So we, we said, Lord, we need a dog that would really appreciate being adopted. So we went week after week after week after week. And we found a group of puppies that were real small, but they, you couldn't adopt until they were eight weeks old. So we'd go back every week, and not yet. Every week, not yet. And then we'd go look at the older dogs. And then it had to be, as we were waiting for, put our name in and put our money down to receive one of the puppies, I, I walked by one of the older dogs, and this dog was about nine months old, they said. And there's just something that attracted me to this dog. And so I stopped. I said, hey, how you doing? The dog came up, and it laid itself over, and I reached to the bars and petted it. And my wife and my granddaughter were there. They walked by it. And I said, hey, come check this dog out. And she said, no, man, we're getting a puppy. Well, honey, it's only nine months old. Now we're getting a puppy. I said, okay, so I petted it, and I walked away, and I came back, and there was the dog again. I, there was just something that attracted me to this dog. And I I got there again, I petted, and I said, babe, I think I like this dog. She goes, no, no, we already said we're getting a puppy, you know. So a week goes by, and we go back next week, and I'm hoping that that dog is still there. Okay, and we go there, and the dog was still there. I went up there, and I said, hey, how you doing? Like the dog could really understand, you know. Like he was going to say, I'm doing fine, how about you, you know. I mean, but uh, I said, um, I, I there's something about you that I like. Well, my wife came back, and she looked at the dog. She goes, well, the dog is kind of cute. And I said, well, let's see how she responds to the granddaughter. So we brought granddaughter one day and brought another one another day, and the dog really reached out and loved them. So, yeah, so we bought, we bought the dog. 
We have the dog at the home. Uh, we named her uh, Shelby. I named, usually name my dog like Pastor Tim after power tools. I named this one after the Mustang, Shelby Mustang. Um, but she is, you can tell, she is so excited to be part of a family. I've never had a dog that wants to cuddle as much as she does. She is just so excited. In fact, even though she's a puppy, if she has an opportunity between eating food or cuddling with us, she would rather cuddle, which is amazing because all my other dogs would be I'm eating, right? <laughs> now, I don't want to put human thoughts into her, but you can tell she appreciates being part of a family. Now, if a dog can understand that, those of us who have been created in God's image and have minds to be able to think and comprehend, we begin to think about how we are loved in Christ. Shouldn't that cause us to just be overwhelmed? To help you do that, Don, what time do you say I have the 10 after? A quarter after. A quarter after. Oh, man, this is great. All right, a quarter after. I want to read you a little extended excerpt from a, from a sermon who I, from somebody I consider to be America's greatest theologian, and that was Jonathan Edwards. And Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon called The Justice of God and the Damnation of Sinners. And the reason why I want you to read that, I'll read it to you, I want you to, to contrast what Jonathan Edwards is pointing out with how we are loved in Christ and how we need to continue to pray for power to really comprehend the limitless dimension of the love of Christ for us. Well, Jonathan Edwards started off by asking this question. If God should reject and destroy you, would that not be appropriate considering how you have behaved toward God and others? As he gives four supporting statements. The first is this. If God should forever cast you off, it would be exactly agreeable to your treatment of him. Instead of using the brains God gave you to try to fault God, which is the most foolish of all things, you should apply them to the right thinking, and the first point of right thinking is to examine how you have treated God. You do not stand up very well under such a direct examination. To begin, you have not shown any particular affections or love towards God. When people are in love, they think of the loved one constantly and want to be with that person and are always thinking of what they can do for the object of their love. But you have not done that. You do not think often of God. In fact, you think of him hardly at all, except to blame him when things do not go exactly as you would like. You do not want to be with God. You do not go to church often or spend much time in prayer or Bible study. You do not try always to be doing something for God. If you have not shown any particular affection or love toward God, why should God be obligated to love you? Why should he be obliged to show you any favor whatsoever? Again, you have slighted God in thousands of ways throughout your entire life. Everything you are and have comes from God, but you have not been thankful for it, nor have you made any serious effort to find out why God has given you the abilities, advantages, and opportunities you have been given. You have used these things for yourself, trying to accumulate as much money or pleasure or praise as possible without any thought of Him. Why should God pay attention to you in any way when you are negligent of His bountiful gifts and favors? You have also refused to hear God's call to you, even though they have come to you many times and in a variety of ways. You have heard the gospel preached. You have read the good news. You possess a Bible. Has God never spoken to you calling from sin to Christ by these means? 
Have you ever felt your heart moved, your will challenged by these truths? Some in some parts of the world have not received these calls, but you have received them again and again, and still you turn a deaf ear in God's direction. You will not hear him. Why should he hear you even as you cry out to him in grief and desperation at the last day? Secondly, if you should forever be cast off by God, it would be agreeable to your treatment of Jesus Christ. But it's not only God the Father whom you have rejected, you have also despised the work of the Son of God. It would have been just of God to reject you outright without ever having offered to you a Savior. He has provided Christ Jesus, the most wonderful, the most holy, the most merciful, and the most gracious person who has ever walked upon the earth. But your pleasures are more important to you than him. You ignore him and demean him by not sharing him with others. If he were here in person to confirm, confront you and your sinful behavior and tell you to repent of it, you would, if the truth be told, easily find yourself in a crowd like that of his own day, crying out to Pilate for his blood. If God should cast you off forever, wouldn't that be the most just and reasonable thing in the world in light of your treatment of Christ? Number three, if God should forever cast you off and destroy you, it would be agreeable to your treatment of others. The one thing that even sinful human beings find easy to believe is in fair play, doing to others as they have done to you. And you acknowledge a certain poetic justice when a person who cheats another gets cheated, or a bully gets beaten, or a thief goes to jail. You like that, and even are so arrogant to believe that is how you would like to be treated by Almighty God. But what if God treated you how you have treated others? You know that sin hurts and destroys, and yet you have not been content to sin alone. You have involved others in your sins. And if you have been unable to do that with some particular person, if he or she has resisted your advances or disagreed with your lies or disengaged from your evil schemes, you have been quick to speak against the person for possessing the morality you despise. And even in that, you are harming others. For your example is harmful even when you do not think about it much as you probably do not. Fathers, your examples have harmed your children. And mother, your sins have left the dark stains on your offspring. And young people, your immorality and your lack of any true seeking after God has damaged your friends and peers. Why does God owe you the favor of salvation when you've been so evil, irresponsible, and harmful in your treatment of others? If you want justice, would it not be just for God to treat you as you have treated others? And lastly, if God should eternally cast you off, it would be agreeable to your own behavior toward yourself. I will not say that you're able to save yourself. You cannot. But you have failed even to do what you can. There are many sins from which you could have refrained, but you have embraced instead. There are many steps towards God that you could have taken, but you have turned away. Indeed, like Jonah, you have run in the opposite direction. You cannot convert yourself, but you can place yourself where a conversion is most likely to happen. If God should be pleased to do it, you can read his word. You can pursue it diligently. You can seek the company of those who know God and speak often of him. Is God obligated to take better care of you than you're willing to take care of yourself? Neither your responsibility toward God nor your legitimate interest in your eternal welfare has been enough for you to put God and spiritual things before your passing pleasure. Is God obligated to do any different for you? Why should he seek your welfare 
when you yourself will not seek it, and in fact, actually pursue your own destruction willingly. If God should treat us at times like we treat him, as time as we treat others, all of us would deserve damnation. And yet in the midst of that, God has given us mercy because of his great love. We have been bought and purchased with a price, the precious blood of Jesus. Who we were before has changed because we're now in Christ. And because we're in Christ, that's why they're first called Christians, because they represented Christ. What we do, what we think, what we will become emerges out of that understanding. And the thing is, because we still struggle with our old sin nature, we must pray for God's power to overcome the tendency to go back to I, me, my, and mine. And every one of the situations I've recently been involved in for churches that are fighting, it always goes back to this. I keep asking the same question. Where is Christ? People have staked off the positions that they think. It's amazing that Jesus says, if you're going to come after me, you must deny yourself, pick up your cross daily, and follow me. And yet what happens to us in America, we come to church like consumers. Instead of asking, what can I do that will bring honor and glory to Christ, we ask this question, what are you going to give to me, church? And if you don't do it exactly like I want, I'm going to go to a different church. And if they don't do it exactly like I want, I'm going to go to still a different church. We have become people that focus on I, me, my, and mine, and yet we, we bathe it and clothe it in spirituality and make it sound like we're really seeking after Christ. But are we really? When it's all stripped away, when it's all said and done, who are we living for? Every one of these churches, every one of these problems, I can share with you that what is at the very core is not Christ dwelling at the very center of their lives. It's their own personal preferences, their own personal desires and delights. It's their own personal selfishness. You don't have to teach anybody to be selfish. We are born that way. For those of you who have little kids and grandchildren, isn't that true? And yet, we're just like them. During Christmas, we took our children and our grandchildren up to uh, Cattleman's. And so my wife always tries to buy the little granddaughter something to occupy them while we're eating food. So... We don't get kicked out of the restaurant for being embarrassed, you know. And so I had the menu in front of me, and it happened to be my little six-year-old granddaughter was playing with the stuff her, my wife had given her, and our four-year-old was looking at what the six-year-old had. And so I hear her saying as I'm looking at the menu, but I, I want what that one is. And so I hear her parents say, Peyton, you need to be thankful. And she says this, but I'm not thankful. I couldn't stop laughing. <laughs> and my daughter sitting in the front row, she goes, Dad, you got to quit laughing. I couldn't stop laughing because what she said is what she really felt. But aren't we just like that? We've learned how to cover it up. She's got no filter. But we're just like that, isn't it? I'm not thankful. I don't like it that way. I want it to change. I want it to be different. Instead of saying, Lord, what is it that you want? We have to pray. It's not just going to happen. You can study God's word, which will teach you, teach you, rebuke you, correct you, and train you in righteousness. What Paul is saying, though, for us to have Christ really dwell where he takes over our house, to be able to understand that he loves us with a love that surpasses knowledge, we must pray for it. And we must pray for it continuously. Lord, I need power. I need power to reflect upon your love. I need power to know how much you really love me. Earlier in the letter, Paul says that we are going to talk about the unsearchable 
riches that are in Christ Jesus. Notice they're unsearchable. You do realize when you get to heaven, even when you're in heaven, you're going to continue to learn things more and more about the riches of Christ day after day, year after year, eternity after eternity. It's inexhaustible. That Christ is the one who loves us. The world needs to hear about that Christ. The world needs to know about that Christ. The world needs to see that Christ. But he can't if we're fighting among ourselves. It can't if churches are, are splitting apart. I didn't give my life to Christ until I was 21 years old, and I thought it was interesting when I began to hear about churches. And, and I said, oh, that's how they came over the name. First Baptist Church, Second Baptist Church. Second Baptist Church belonged to the First Baptist Church. And they got in a fight, and they made the Second Baptist Church. I said, oh, that's how they came up with some of those names. That's how some churches arise. And a lot of times it's not over doctrinal issues. It's not over ethical issues. It's over preferences. I don't like the music. It's played too loud. I don't like the music. It's played too soft. I want more hymns. I don't want any hymns. I want to be able to stand up and move around. <laughs> I don't like that, Pastor Rich. I got to stand just like this. When has it ever been about us? And yet we talk to others and we feel that it is. It's not. What I'm sharing with you, listen, Christ continues to get a black eye because people say it does not work because those of us who know Christ should know better. We should act better. We should be living better. We should be pointing them to the only one who really matters, the only one who can matter, and that's Christ. We must never forget who we are. What we do emerges out of who we are. We are the loved recipients of Jesus Christ. Although he holds the whole world together, took upon human flesh and died on the cross for you and me. He bought and purchased with his precious blood. Do you believe that? And if you believe that, you need to live it. And you need to pray for power that you can live it, that others will see it. I'm watching what's taking place in America. Wrong things are called right. Right things are called wrong. I never thought I'd see some of the stuff that I have seen in my lifetime. And yet, we are on a slippery slope. It seems like we're going down faster. And yet, what scares me is not that about our nation. is that the church seems to be right on the skids with them. Stop. We need to stop. I'm encouraging you. You need to pray. Two petitions found here in Ephesians. I want to encourage you, memorize this passage of Scripture. Put it up someplace where you see it continuously. Make cards. If it's in your car as you're driving to work, put it on the refrigerator if you spend a lot of time getting snacks. Okay? If you spend a lot of time in the bathroom, put it in the bathroom. <clears throat> put it someplace where you'll see it and make a commitment to pray, Lord, please give me power that Christ will dwell in my heart through faith and give me power along with all the other saints to know the height and depth and breadth and, and, and length to know everything I can about the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Why, Paul says, so that I will live a life, be filled with the fullness of the measure of God, which is Paul's way of saying mature. We need mature churches today in America. We need mature Christians today in America. I'm asking you, Grace Community Church, would you take that challenge? Now, I'm not saying that you're not mature. Please don't take that, because I have no idea. I hope you are. Would you take that challenge to begin to pray this? Pray it for your pastors. Pray it for your leaders. Pray it for yourself. Pray it for your family. Pray it for my church. That God would give us the power that Christ would dwell to change us from the inside out where everything that we do will reflect that we belong to him and that we would know this love 
and this love would hold us together even when life is falling apart. Would you pray with me at this moment? Father, I wish I had much more time <clears throat> to develop this fuller, but Lord, you have blessed this church with good, godly pastors who could teach this to them. You have blessed us to live in a culture in which we have learned to read and write. You have blessed us in a culture in which we have your word that all of us can own and possess. You have blessed us, Heavenly Father, to be able to join with other like-minded brothers and sisters to encourage one another. And we might get off track living for I, me, and my, and mine, to have them gently, sometimes not so gently, to show us that we have gotten off track. When it's all said and done, Heavenly Father, we want it to be about Jesus. It's got to be about Jesus. You have left us here for that purpose, and so may it be, Lord, please help the bleeding that's taking place in our churches. Help it, Lord. We don't want to hear about any more churches splitting apart and breaking up. We don't want to hear about any more families that are splitting up and breaking apart. We don't want to hear any more about children that, that are at odds with their parents and parents at odds with their children. For all of us who know Christ, Lord, I am praying, give us power that Christ will dwell in our inner beings through faith and give us power that we will be able to grasp how long and high and deep and wide is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that we might be filled to all the fullness of the measure of you. Father, in your mercy and grace, would you grant that to us? I pray in the precious name of Christ. Amen. I'm one minute over. But I heard uh, Pastor John usually 10 minutes over, so I beat him. All right. <laughs>